1: Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell. Joining me today to talk some Americans in action this past weekend is a man who knows the best way to celebrate the holiday season is by playing Bosnia in December. It's Joe Lowry. Hello, Joe. Are you ready for a random December friendly?
2: Oh, Taylor, there's nothing that gets me in the holiday spirit more than a friendly against Bosnia. You're so (laughs) right about that. I could not be more excited. So I was
1: very surprised to to hear this news, see this news. Joe Lowry, to his credit, messaged me to say, hey, we should probably talk about the uh, the schedule for December and January. And I had not seen it yet. And at first was very confused why we were playing a friendly in December. It makes more sense once you remember that things are condensed when it comes to the World Cup qualifying schedule. Correct, Joe? Oh,
2: absolutely. So the schedule is weird this year, and it's weird, especially given past World Cup qualifying cycles. So instead of there being any sort of January camp with a friendly at the end of that camp like there was against Bosnia back in 2018... There's there's not a January camp friendly. There's instead a December camp and a December camp friendly, followed then, stay with me, by a January camp with domestic base players most likely, that then will be joined by the European based World Cup qualifying players for the January World Cup qualifier against El Salvador that then leads into February. It's see, Taylor, it's all very simple here. It's actually it's <laughs> it's not that complicated, but because of the scheduling and the condensed World Cup qualifying calendar to be specific Greg baralder's put together this December camp and that will end in a friendly against Bosnia that then transitions into the new new year with all of those mm-hmm. important World Cup qualifiers but you know what Joe that's December
1: and January it's now November which means <laughs> we've got a, a World Cup qualifying camp coming up we've got two games ahead of us we should get that roster this week I'm guessing later on in the week We're going to sort of talk about some people who might be involved in in that roster when we talk about the players who did things this weekend. As we have sort of started to do, Joe, we're going to run through... A bunch of different names, then we'll get to some in more detail later on, but let's start with some quick hits, and in Italy, let's go to Weston McKinney, who scored for Juventus, but they lost. Uh, the team is on a forced retreat this week. They are in isolation <laughs> in their training facility. I always thought it meant that they had to go out to some like remote area of Italy and be around nobody. It basically just means they're locked in their training facility, phone's taken away, they have to focus on the, the task at hand or the season at hand, uh, but Joe, I have heard some rumors, Brian Ryan was tweeting about this, uh, that if Juve do decide this is sort of a rebuilding season, we need to figure some things out. We need to move some people on. McKinney could be one of those players moved on, but in a positive way, as in he is an asset to them now. He continues to play well, work hard, and has increased his value. So could be on the move in January. I think I would not like to see that because I think I like having Americans play for sort of institutions like Juve and Bayern. Uh, what about you? Would you like to
2: see him stay at Juve? Would you like to see him continue to develop there? Or would you like to see him move on to something else? I'd like to see him stay. I think Juve's a good spot for him right now, which is a sentence I didn't really think I'd be saying when he was at Schalke and and we were talking about maybe him going to Southampton. But he's getting minutes. He's getting minutes for them, Taylor. And I think he's playing a pretty important role for that squad. He fits well in Max Allegri's more defensive system. He can cover ground. He can do a lot of the dirty work, like we talked about him doing under Pirlo last season, but with a very different tactical framework around him. I think stability is important as still a relatively young player and continuing to have a chance to establish himself under Allegri, even while Juve struggles, certainly as we can tell by the result this weekend. I think it's important for him to have some continuity there. So I'd like to see him stay around. I'd like to see him continue to be a part of this team and hopefully he can be around as Juve turn the tables a little bit here. I would be all right with that. I have been okay with Conrad De La Fuente getting minutes for uh,
1: Marseille. Uh, He did so again starting at left mid in a 1-0 win this past weekend. Uh, From what I saw from the data I saw, uh, very good in his take-ons, very aggressive in trying to take people on and create, but at the same time limited in his involvement. I think only had like seven passes on the day, which means from an attacking standpoint, he's not getting as involved getting on the ball as much as maybe we would like to see him do. So that is a thing we'll have to keep an eye on. I don't think we'll see De La Fuente in this upcoming camp, but uh, I could well be wrong. I think the same goes for Josh Sargent. 77 goalless minutes and a 2-1 loss to Aye. Leeds. It is great that he's playing for Norwich, but still not having that much of an attacking impact the way we and probably Norwich fans would like to see.
2: Yeah, it's such a bummer here, Taylor, continuing to watch Josh Sargent try but not Mm -hmm. succeed. He is maybe trying his best and not succeeding. There is a chance, though, given some of the injuries that we talked about last week, specifically to Jossie Zardes, there is a chance that Josh Sargent could fall upwards into a U.S. Men's National Team call-up, right? Not thriving with Norwich in the Premier League right now at all. It's been a tough stretch for them, and it will continue to be a tough stretch, I would bet. But it's entirely possible that because Zardes... Is not going to be involved, likely, in, in this camp coming up in November. There's an open striker spot somewhere. Ricardo Pepe's back in the lineup for Dallas, and so he's almost certainly going to be involved for Greg Beralter. But there's a big question mark as to who the second and, and maybe third striker, if, if that's what Beralter chooses to do and chooses to bring three. We don't really know what the depth chart looks like right now after Pepe, and it's probably less of a depth chart and more of just a, a bunch of names in some sort of cluster underneath Ricardo Pepe. Yeah.
1: A depth cluster?
2: Yeah, Yeah. that that is a really good way to put it, because I'm with you that even when we have Zardes fully
1: fit, it's like, okay, we know it's Pepe, we know Zardes could be in there as the contingency, the second choice, whatever it may be, and then we'll look at the other options. With Zardes out, it sort of feels like there's Pepe, we know will be there. And then there are many, many other names. Uh, Jordan Fuck would be one of those, but he has been in and out of uh, the Young Boys team and in and out of form. Uh, we, we could see Joe Kindy brought back in potentially, or we could see Timothy Wea tried there. We could also see some MLS players get some call-ups, get some looks. Joe, yeah. if we were going to go MLS, who is the number nine you would feel most comfortable with?
2: Uh, I mean, there's a couple of really fringe names that just haven't been involved with the national team before. Brian White's been, been doing quite well with Vancouver. Jordan Morris just got back into the fray for Seattle playing as a 9 on Monday night, last night as we're recording on Tuesday. He got his first MLS minutes of the season, which is super exciting, but... All signs in the past have pointed to Barhalter seeing him as a wide player and one of those players who can really stretch the back line. So, really, the option you're looking at there is Daryl DK, who scored a few goals yep. coming back and being healthy with Orlando City. But I'm not fully sold on him as a player and not really sold on his ability to impact a game on a consistent level right now. The options are, are well, the options aren't thin, but the quality of the options is relatively low. And, and that's not the best place for the U.S. to be in right now.
1: Yeah, I would. I think you're you're right on on every front of that, Joe, that like the options aren't bad and there's not a lack of options. It's just they are unproven or we know there are deficiencies. So even right. if Josh Sargent were going to be called in, like I, I think and I would that would make sense to me both because of the lack of options, but also because he has been playing. He has been working very hard. He's been doing what his coach asks of him, which is all positive. We don't see that sort of number nine ability to score goals, to create, to hold up play, the things that maybe we need to see. But with the lack of other options, I I don't think basically we should have too many like Too much outrage if somebody gets brought in that we don't think should be there because I would say even like Jesus Ferreira, based on what I've seen of him and what you've told me of him, Joe, seems like a player that could be in that conversation.
2: That's a great one. I I completely blanked on Ferreira there. He's a change of pace, and we've gotten a couple of looks at him with the U.S. Men's National Team and with the Olympic team in the past, and so I think most folks out there probably have a pretty good idea of what he brings, dropping in, linking play, not a huge threat in the box, but he's a nice player that could be a change of pace, and we could see Taylor in all... FC Dallas number 9 death chart for this upcoming November camp for the U.S. Men's National Team. There we go.
1: All right, all right. I like that for Dallas. I like that for the U.S. Uh, I like seeing Christi- Christian Pulisic uh, back in the team. He should be in Chelsea's Champions League team this week, which means he On the bench. should be fit enough... To make there we go should be fit enough to make the uh, the roster I would assume which is a positive because we would assume that Gio Reyna will still miss this window is still out injured so Pulisic back Reyna unlikely to be back uh, but we do have other players who could be involved with the camp Joe who were involved this weekend including Sergio Dest new manager at Barcelona maybe not the permanent manager but a temporary manager they had a one one draw we talked about that on the weekend review Reggie Cannon. Started against Porto for Boavista, hooray. Subbed off 17 minutes into the game, less of a hooray. To me, uh, if that is a serious injury, I haven't seen a ton of reporting about it. It tends to just be referred to as picked up an injury, was subbed off. Uh, We don't know how severe that will be, but given the lack of form, the relative lack of form in the injury, I don't know if Reggie Cannon makes that roster. One player who might make it instead of him, we'll talk about later on, but that would be on the
2: right-back side. Let's talk left-back for a moment, Joe, because Sam Vines is doing things once again. Sam Vines is back, baby. We talked about him in in detail last week. He started again for Royal Antwerp this past weekend. It was a second straight league starting. He's also been starting some of the Europa League as well. He's become an important player for them, rehabbing and, and getting back into the lineup after a collarbone injury. It's great to see Vines back in here, and we talked about him, actually, I think a couple times last week. I think we mentioned him as a player who hasn't been involved in World Cup qualifying, who could sneak in and be an important player for the U.S. either next year in World Cup qualifying or in the World Cup, because after Anthony Robinson on the left side of the back line, there's not a formalized hierarchy. George Bellow has been acting as the backup left-back, backup left-back, Dest as well has been sliding over there, but... there's a chance here for Vines to continue playing well for Antwerp, getting involved there, and for him to translate that momentum into some national team call-ups.
1: And given that we think the December camp will be primarily MLS players because it's outside of the, the FIFA windows, I, I would not be surprised at all to see Sam Vines brought in because he is back to fitness because it did seem like he impressed in the Gold Cup. And because George Bello has been fine, I would say not great and certainly not at that level where it's Anthony Roberts and George Bellow. We know that for sure. Those are our left backs going forward. So I think there's room for Sam Vines to c- get called in. Joe, my, my sort of fullback... Not even depth drop, but just my my assumption would be for this roster. If we have four to five fullbacks called in, it will be Anthony Robinson. It will be Sam Vines. It will be Serginio Dest, and then my guess would be Joe Scally, DeAndre Yedlin. Could be. I
2: don't. I'm not fully sold on on Vines being involved in this camp. I could be totally mm-hmm. wrong on that. I think it's more like You didn't mention Bello there, did you, Taylor? I think I had him as behind Sam
1: Vines because he could be in the camp in December, but I, right. I, like, I guess we'll know for sure if Bellow's called in and not Vines, then it's safe to assume that Bellow has retained that second-choice spot.
2: Yeah, I mean, at least for now. There's a lot up in the air. I, I, there's not a lot up in the air total for this roster, but we talked about the striker spot and maybe some of the fullback depth. That could be a spot where we see some new players like Joe Scalley, who we'll talk about more later. And Sam Bynes. I think it's maybe more likely that we see Sam Bynes in 2022, but never say never, Taylor. You never know. Never say never, Joe. (laughs) Uh,
1: And I will never say never to Matt Miazga or Mark McKenzie, uh, both of whom have not been playing for their respective clubs. McKenzie's been in and out of the lineup for Genk, but hasn't played in either of their last two. Miazga we talked about recently and I don't think would have been involved in this upcoming roster anyway, but I, I expect that even less so with him not playing this weekend. Uh, John Brooks, though, gets a new manager, gets the win, a bounce-back performance for Wolfsburg. Uh, Florian Kofeld couldn't do it with Werder Bremen, but is apparently going to do it with Wolfsburg. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I talked about how Sargent might be able to fall upwards into a U.S. Men's National Team call-up. Florian Kofeld has fallen upwards big time yeah, from yes. getting Werder Bremen relegated to now coaching Wolfsburg in the Champions League. I... Props to his agent or whoever is in charge of making those things happen. That is top-tier agenting right there, Taylor.
1: (laughs) But it's nice to see John Brooks getting a win, uh, being involved with the win, not being substituted off when they're trying to make something happen. So positive signs there, and we do have, uh, I would say, plenty of center back depth.
2: Uh, And I'm assuming, Joe, that you want Cameron Carter-Vickers starting every single game of qualifying coming up? I want him starting as a nine and just bulldozing (laughs) everyone around him. I sort of imagine that's what he's doing in Scotland right now for Celtic. Um, So if we could just translate that into really all areas of life, I think things would be more entertaining with a CCV bulldozer around.
1: Joe, as as we've talked about many times, the goldfish brain uh, situation, I saw a photo of Cameron Carter-Vickers wearing a Celtic shirt and sort of forgot that that had happened for a moment. <laughs> so that was a nice reminder. It's why I brought it up today. Uh Also, a nice reminder that Major League Soccer is rapidly coming to a close, the regular season. We've got Decision Day this weekend. Definitely snuck up on on me, Joe, even though you and I have talked about it previously as being a thing that was rapidly approaching,
2: here we are. How are you feeling about uh, the end of the regular season, the start of the playoffs? Things are happening. Taylor, Sunday is yeah, going buddy. to be wild. All the Eastern Conference games kick off at the same time, and then all the Western Conference games kick off at the same time. And there's midweek games before then. There's a game tonight on Tuesday and some games on Wednesday. So we won't have the complete picture of really what's up for grabs until after Wednesday night, Thursday morning. But, man, it looks to me right now like there could be a handful, at minimum, of playoff spots up for grabs. A lot of important games on Sunday. I cannot wait. It's going to be, it's going to be wild, Taylor. And we will have
1: uh, some players involved in those games who we're going to talk about now. You mentioned Jordan Morris earlier. Joe played for the yeah. first time this MLS season coming off the bench Monday night versus the Galaxy. Uh It has seemed like that was a spot for the U.S. that was waiting for Jordan Morris to return, that right wing spot where where Berhalter seems to want verticality, he seems to want physicality and energy, but also technical control, maybe some goal scoring, maybe some balls into the box. All of that seems uh, suited to Jordan Morris. So what level of involvement are you expecting for him as we get into the playoffs and maybe for the U.S. national team as well?
2: I think for Seattle, he's going to, at least for now, be a bench option where he can come mm-hmm. off the bench and give you that 30 minutes like he did against the Galaxy, give you some energy, he can play wide, he can play centrally as a nine, he came in for Raul Rui Diaz on Monday night. So he can do a number of those different jobs for Brian Schmetzer. I think, like I mentioned earlier, we will see him on the wing for the U.S. Men's National Team. And where he fits into that depth chart, I don't really know, right? Because a lot of the attributes that you just mentioned that Brother likes in his winger core... Morris has, but he does something a little bit different than I think each player. He's a little bit more direct than Tim Weah and, and Brendan Aronson. He's maybe not quite as hard of a defensive worker as Paul Areola. And so while he's not in the Gio Reyna-Christian Pulisic stratosphere, and, and probably not in the Aaronson-Weah stratosphere either – he does bring some different qualities to that winger group. And so I don't know how much he's going to factor in. I'd be shocked if we saw him in November. I think it's important to give him time to, to really get in with his club. But I, I would be even more shocked if he doesn't play a part in the December camp that we talked about to lead this show. January probably as well, and maybe he transfers that, that form from the January camp with the domestic-based players into a call-up to the World Cup qualifying group in January.
1: I know this is like beating a dead horse when it comes to talking points, but I'm going to do it anyway. We talk a lot about how the U.S. pool is rapidly approaching a time when names will have to be left off when it comes to selecting on that final roster. And there are going to be some big names in there. And looking at those attacking options, if everyone were fit, and that is a big old if, it does suddenly start to look pretty full, especially when it comes to the players that Berhalter likes to bring in because they have the experience or are part of the group or whatever it might be. I hadn't really thought about how you do have to kind of change things up a little bit to get Jordan Morris in there, and I think that will be a thing we'll see if it, if it ends up being worth doing as he comes back into form. But, wow, Joe, there is some attacking depth that wide, even if I didn't see it. Uh, but let's talk about maybe depth that could be provided by MLS players. Who are some other ones who did some things this past weekend?
2: Sure, I've got a short list here. I mentioned Ricardo Pepe earlier. He was back in the starting lineup for Dallas. Jesus Ferreira scoring a goal against Austin FC in that same game. Good to see the Dallas youngsters getting involved. There, Cade Cowell had a really nice solo goal against RSL over the weekend, turning on the Jets, taking some massive touches to eat space. Like It reminded me of, of in FIFA when you just flick the stick and the ball goes way out in front of you. Cade Cowell yep. did that about eight times before uh, carving through a couple of defenders in the box to score for San Jose. It's a nice goal. Go look it up, folks. Paxton Aronson, not a player, and, and same with Cade Cowell, who we expect to be involved all that soon with the U.S. Men's national team, but certainly someone to watch. Paxton Aronson started And scored for the Philadelphia Union in their 2 0 win over FC Cincinnati over the weekend. He had some shifty touches, looks creative on the ball. Caden, uh, Caden Clark, excuse me, getting involved in the New York Red Bulls game winner. We mentioned last week in that scuffed crossover. I don't remember which episode it was on, theirs or or the one that ended up in our feed. But we talked a bit about Caden Clark and his upcoming move to RB Leipzig. He's now getting involved some for Gerhard Struber and was really impressive off the bench, I thought, in that game for the New York Red Bulls in a 1-0 win over CF Montreal. And then the last one, Taylor, I've got James Sands. He's been playing some right back for Ronnie Dyla and NYCFC. Not necessarily bombing up the sideline for them, but, but pinching it a little little bit doing some different jobs defensively and, and different positioning and possession but he's been playing a couple or a few games at that right back spot for Ronnie Dyla and it gives him another dimension and another spot for the ever versatile James Sands.
1: Joe going back to Paxton Aronson for a second why is this established old hand veteran still playing in Major League Soccer I mean he's at the the tender age of 18 already how, how is he still here Joe?
2: Oh, man. I I guess we got to get Ernst Tanner to, to start the Amazon <laughs> shipping containers and moving those players Apparently. over. He's He's got a lot of maturing to do still. Yeah. But man, the potential is clear. And I would be surprised if he made it through certainly more than one full MLS season after this one, but maybe even if he made it past wow. the halfway point of next year and staying in Philly.
1: I was sort of joking. I know, just I Just as know, a way yeah. to talk
2: about the fact that a youngster is
1: already doing things whose brother has already been doing things. But that's very impressive for the uh, the Aronson siblings. I expect more from them. Uh, Joe, I'm excited, though, to talk about some of the uh, players we, we looked at in more depth uh, from this weekend. First, let's take a break to hear from today's sponsors. All right, Joe, we are back. Let's get into it. Let's talk Tanner Tespin, the obvious place to start the player that everybody was watching this weekend. Some people may actually have been because Venezia has the jerseys, they've got the style, and they've got two Americans starting in Serie A for the first time ever. Well done, Venice. Well done, Gianluca Busio. Sort of well done, Tanner Tespin, is my appraisal of the situation.
2: Okay, Taylor, before we talk Tanner Tespin, did you see sort of the Twitter beef between Venezia's account and ESPN over the weekend? Oh, about ESPN like repurposing their jerseys (laughs) essentially? Yeah, so I guess ESPN had had tweeted out a picture or some pictures of Venezia's jerseys, and they'd photoshopped them slightly or tweaked the images. Eesh. And Venezia reached out and, and quote tweeted that tweet and said, basically, you know, you, you guys probably don't need to photoshop our jerseys, given that you're from the design capital of the world, Bristol, Connecticut. It was it, it was funny. <laughs> I appreciate the Twitter beef between some of these places. Um, yeah, and
1: I, and I think I think that that ESPN account also has priors when it comes to maybe repurposing some images or yes, repurposing yes. some tweets and then kind of reframing them as their own. So, yeah, credit to Venezia for, uh, for just having a little uh, clap back there. That, uh, I
2: appreciate was that. Was that some personal experience there, Taylor? Has, has something like that ever happened to you? I can't remember. I don't think
1: so, but maybe, maybe I've blocked it out of my memory. I'm, I just, I do just see a lot of people be like, Oh, that's a fun graphic to have up. I wonder where I've seen that before. And then you click on their account and you realize that they posted it the day before.
2: I'm actually, I, I asked that because I'm pretty sure that did happen to you over the Euros. Oh, really? It was some Italy set piece that I think they ripped the, oh, yeah, the they screenshot and, and it did yeah. real numbers. It did numbers for you too, but, uh, you
1: know. Oh, yeah, that did happen. <laughs> and they may also have uh, done the, like, like made too direct of a reference to our Star Wars Fantasy eleven as well, I think, nice. when nice. Uh, the new Star Wars were coming out. So, yeah, okay, I guess I do. I guess I do. There we go. I had had that professionally removed from my brain. Maybe they did that for me. Who knows, Joe? Hey, But <laughs> I, was, I don't know what the hey was going to be, and I don't know where I was going with it. Instead, I'm going to bring us back to Tanner Tessman, uh, who had an okay weekend. Is that fair to say, Joe? It is,
2: and that's where my hey was gonna eventually get us right. back towards. Uh, all he was, he was alright. <laughs> he, he was pretty much what I expected him to be in this game. So it's his fourth Serie A appearance of the year. His first start for Venezia in Serie A, which is super exciting, right? He'd gotten real minutes for them in this game. I saw him playing as a six and a four, three, three. It did take some different forms. Either way, he was most often the deepest central midfielder for Venezia. And I thought he did some things really well. I thought he read the the game defensively pretty well from the start of this one. He would step to discourage a pass into one of Genoa's central midfielders, and then he would drop back again. And he would step, and he would drop, and he would shift laterally to cover for one of the eights, and then he'd, he'd move back inside. And I liked a lot of those moments. He had a good challenge as well, a, a good tackle that we had sent each other because we both watched film of this game. It's in the 19th minute, and it's a strong challenge from Tanner Tessman, anchoring that midfield group. But there's also moments where he's too slow to react or, or too slow to recover. And he's trying to, you can almost see him trying to grow into his lanky 6'4", I think he's 6'4", frame. And it, it's just not all coming together right four? now. I, I think so, Taylor. He's a big Whoa. dude. And you Whoa. can sort of see that play out. He looks gangly. He looks a little awkward. And, and he has some nice passing mechanics. And, and his technique, I think, is actually pretty strong. But some of the pieces before he releases the ball or as he's trying to move defensively, you can just see the awkwardness come to light. And that'll fade with time, but it does make watching Tanner Testman a little bit of a strange experience right now. First of all, he is six foot
1: four. That blew my mind. I knew he was tall. I just assumed he was tall in relation to Gianluca Busio. But no, he is just straight up tall. The second thing, I'm glad you mentioned uh, like how he will kind of grow into that Joe because I was actually having a conversation with my brother-in-law about something similar uh, from our time in amateur soccer, grain of salt, amateur soccer, but that like you can when you're like in your 20, like mid to late 20s and you end up playing people who are younger or just out of college, there's always that moment of like, oh, no, they're going to be really fit. They're coming out of college. They're going to be able to run me off the pitch. But it does take a little bit of time, sometimes into your mid 20s to learn how to use your size to use that physicality and and I did see some signs from testament of just still being a little bit young a little bit raw in the way he's able to use that size that I do think a year from now we're going to see him bodying some people and stepping between yeah. a player and the ball and just sort of stopping them where they are because Six foot four is, I believe, how tall Pogba is. It's one inch shorter than Zlatan. If you develop that physicality and use that size, build some strength into it, it becomes such a useful skill, especially in midfield. So uh, now knowing he's six foot four, Joe,
2: I- I'm I'm pretty. Pretty excited about Tanner Tessman, even more than I already was. Well, and I think that's what has Venezia so excited about Tanner Mm -hmm. Tessman. He has, I mentioned this a little bit already, he has some quality with his right foot, and he can work his way out of tight spaces, good footwork, all of those kinds of things. But really, what he most has going for him is his athleticism. He's a phenomenal athlete, but it's taking weird forms right now, because you might expect a phenomenal athlete to be able to recover really quickly and turn and change direction really fast. Tessman can't do that right now. He can cover ground with his long legs and really make moves over large spaces. But he's a little awkward when he's trying to move without the ball in those tight spaces or maneuver really quickly and turn himself to get around and and track back. So it's a weird mix of things right now, but you can clearly see when you watch him, this guy has potential. He's only 20 years old right now. There's plenty of time for him to grow into that frame like we've been mentioning. And and the potential is is pretty clearly there. Yeah, Yes, it
1: absolutely is. And I do think it requires basically just veteran confidence to continue to develop because there were plays uh, on the weekend when you could tell that he didn't quite back himself to get there or it was more of a like I hope I can get there and those are the ones when he doesn't when he gets dribbled around or he gets wall passed pretty easily but the few moments when you could tell he was reacting with instinct or he spotted a loose touch or just knew I have to make this play I oftentimes saw him step and win or make the attacker turn back and that was where I felt like he was sort of playing on instinct and backing himself versus is thinking about what he was doing and worrying about making a mistake. I'm definitely implying some psychoanalysis there that maybe isn't fair. (laughs) But I think what I'm trying to speak to is the idea that when you have that size and that physicality, you do have to worry about the turning radius and the John Brooks uh, problem of being in 1v1s. But if you back yourself to just win those and go in fully and make sure that either you get the ball or the player, and one way or the other the play is stopped, that can go a long way towards cementing your status in a team as that sort of defensive midfielder.
2: It absolutely can. And you mentioning you mentioning a position there, Taylor. I don't really know what Tanner Tasman's best long term position is. Is yeah. it as a six? Is it as an eight? It's a very similar conversation to what we've been having about Gianluca Busio for the last year, 18 months, or however long now. He's a versatile player that has skills that, that really lend themselves to a number of different spots in midfield. I'm confident that he will be a central midfielder and not a 10, but really beyond that, I don't know what his best role is right now, just because we haven't seen a, a lot of him at club level, whether that's for Dallas Or for Venezia now in Serie A, it's going to be really interesting, I think, to watch how Tesman develops and and maybe where he finds a more permanent home in central midfield.
1: Joe, I have have two questions for you, both of which I would say to listeners, I am being the messenger here when it comes to the question. There is no need to shoot uh, because they are sort of fighting words. The first one. Some of what I watched, Joe, and especially with some of the diagonals that I saw from Tanner Tessman, made me wonder if he is a more defensively capable, mobile Jackson Yule. And I know that there will be people out there who will not enjoy that comparison, uh, and I apologize if Jackson Yule is listening and wants to know why people don't like that comparison. But, Joe, I just saw some of that like ability to read, sitting there, like can pop out when he needs to, but not doing a ton of all over the place, Tyler Adams covering every blade of grass sort of defensive work, but instead stepping when needed, sitting back when needed, playing safe balls. It it kind of reminded me of Jackson Yule.
2: There are some similarities for sure. They both can hit those diagonals, and, and they both do shield the back line in a similar way. From a physical standpoint, there's a pretty yeah. big difference in their profiles as we've as we've gone over. Tessman's a lot bigger than Jackson Yule. And I do think Jackson Yule is more inclined to hit that, hit that diagonal a little bit quicker than Tanner Tessman right now. Yule isn't a hugely adventurous passer. We learned that well from his recent caps with the US Men's National Team. But I don't know that Tessman fully is right now either, so there's another point of comparison. Taylor, I kind of take your point here. They both are players who can shift and cover and play some passes out of the sixth spot. Tessman in general I think is just more raw than Jackson Yule is right now, and that's going to change over time. And I also think as that changes for Tessman, his profile might change too, and he might be unleashed a bit more and allowed to go forward, at least more than Jackson Yule is with the national team. So that could be a a potential future difference. But yeah, there there certainly are some similarities between those two guys.
1: And I think with that said... uh I really liked the defensive awareness from Tesman in this game, that he seemed to have a lot of responsibilities of tracking one runner, but then stepping if somebody had gotten open or found themselves in some space or gotten past another teammate, and I felt like he did a good job of closing that down while not letting anything behind him open up too dramatically, so I thought it was a good defensive showing. In fact, so much so that at times I wondered, with Busio starting alongside Tesman, if we kept seeing that be a starting pair, Joe, or starting sort of two-thirds of a midfield for Venezia, depending on what shape you want to say they went with, it did make me wonder if that was the combo that could spell Tyler Adams for the national team. If they continued to develop, if they continue to improve, we've talked a lot about how there's no one who can really do exactly what Tyler Adams does. He is Tyler Adams. He is the only one. Uh, but if we were going to sort of have to play without him if he got injured or we needed to give him a rest... There continues to be that question of who replaces him, who can do it well enough. And I do wonder if Tesman and Busio, if they continue to build that relationship, could sort of partner each other. You add one more midfielder in there, and now you've got a solid-ish midfield for the United States without Tyler Adams.
2: Post-2022, I'm going to say it's possible. Before okay. the World Cup, I just don't think there's any chance we see that happen. I don't think we'll see Tessman involved, barring uh, some real improvement and development as we head towards 2022. But after after the World Cup, if these guys are... Are developing And bucio has got a little bit more defensive work in him, and, and I'll talk more about that later. I think we are seeing some promising signs there. And if Tessman can improve his decision-making time and he makes those decisions with the ball maybe a little bit quicker and refines his passing and his movement, I think we could see both of those players involved with the national team going forward. And Tessman especially, given his physical profile that we've talked about, he is uniquely qualified. Not right now, but he could be, I should say, uniquely qualified to fill that Adams role just because his physical profiles are really, it's unique in the U.S. pool right now. So, yeah, Taylor, mm-hmm. post-2022 World Cup, I think there's <laughs> that's certainly a permutation that we could see. Joe, I I am a parent now. And I I
1: feel like what you just gave me was the soccer podcast equivalent of the parental like, "Eh, we'll see, like, ask me again later. (laughs) Like, it's that sort of like, I'm not going to give you a decision because I don't want to make the tantrum happen right now. So we're going to push this decision off. And I'm going to hope you forget. So I'm assuming that's what you just did is you're just hoping that I will forget this conversation until after 2022.
2: Well, I, you don't have to forget it necessarily. I just don't think it'll happen before 2022. So you might have to come to peace and, and come to terms with that. And then post World Cup, we can absolutely have this conversation again.
1: All right, fine. I will, <laughs> I will ask again later, then, Joe. Uh, we've got four more Americans uh, to talk about first. One more break to hear from today's sponsors.
0: Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24 7 US based live customer service from Discover,
1: Thank you for sticking with the Total Soccer Show, listeners. Joe Lowry, we've talked about Venezia. Let's move away to a far, far distant land. Let's continue to talk about Venezia. Gianluca Busio.
2: Oh yeah, baby. Busio started and played the full ninety for Venezia in their nil-nil draw with Genoa on Sunday. Busio, and I like to go through and do some background on these players and see how much they've been playing. This one, I think, is impressive. Busio has been a regular starter for Venezia this season, and we didn't really know that was going to happen. He started 10 Serie A games for them this season, and Venezia are currently 16th in the table. Not great, but seeing them outside of the relegation zone is great. So there's some nice things happening with Busio and Venezia right now, and this performance from Gianluca Busio was another one in that list. I thought he was pretty strong in this game, Taylor. We talked about Venezia a little bit already in in their midfield. I saw Busio's. Role as a left-sided number eight in a 4-3-3 with Tessman behind him as the six. But in possession, Busio was popping up all over the place. He was popping up wide. He was popping up in the half space. He was dropping into the left-back spot. He was dropping into the six spot when Tessman would drop between the center backs. He was doing a lot, and he had some nice passes in those different roles. Venezia didn't spend a lot of time in possession in this game. But when they did, Busio did some good stuff, and I I really enjoyed watching him on the ball. He had a really nice ball in the 79th minute, uh, you know, finding... Finding a pass forward, and there's just there was a lot to like about Busio's offensive contributions in this game. Certainly not perfect, to be clear. He had a shot that that didn't quite find the frame in the first half that would have put Venezia up. Oh yeah. There were a couple oh, of yeah. other moments in this one where, where you want more from Busio, but he's a young player, and watching him develop with the ball and, and without the ball, as I alluded to earlier, has been really good to see. And I can see more the more I watch Busio. I can see why Boralther has been involving him pretty regularly at the end of the summer, and then in that in that last camp
1: man I forgot about that shot wide because Busio has that one Tesman also has a volley from about eight yards out that he puts over maybe should have put on frame but Busio definitely should have hit that one on frame so good good spots there Joe but those aside I I really liked what I saw from Jean-Luc Busio, and especially because at first I was just watching Tanner Tesman clips and paying attention to Tesman, and I kept sort of being distracted by how much good stuff Jean-Luc Busio was doing including that pass you mentioned in the 79th minute for folks who haven't seen it It's him basically getting the ball central, coming under pressure, and threading the needle through two, maybe three defenders to find a teammate out wide and sort of trigger this attack. And that is what the United States needs, is somebody who can receive the ball centrally, under pressure, spot an opportunity, and play an accurate pass into space to make the defense have to transition further back into defense or kind of scramble to defend, and gives his side more of an attacking opportunity. I really like that from Busio. I liked his sort of presence on the ball. And I really enjoyed his presence off the ball when it came to closing down
2: opponents. Absolutely, Taylor. I love that you brought that up because that's one thing that we talked about with Busio early on this season when he was first getting minutes with Venezia. Him being too aggressive defensively, like like having too much energy and not really knowing what to do with it. Busio is not the quickest or the fastest guy in terms of straight line speed, but he can cover ground. And I think just now we're starting to see him harness that ground coverage into productivity defensively. So there's a few moments yep. in this game that I sent to you, Taylor, where he's having to shift all the way wide to the left wing, playing as that left sided number eight. He's having to shift all the way wide because of how Venezia are defending. They're in this 4-3-3 shape, not really dropping into a 4-5-1, which would then have the left winger covered the left sideline. So Busio is having to do a lot of ground coverage, just like Baralda's eights have to do in the U.S.'s 4-3-3, so there's similarities there. Busio's having to shift wide, and he does a pretty good job of shutting down some of Genoa's attack as they come down Genoa's right, Venezia's left. The fourth minute, covers ground, wins the ball well. I sent that clip to you, Taylor. Happens again in the 45th minute, and I don't, I don't, I I didn't clip and send all of these moments to you, but there's even more moments beyond that. Then there's one in the 19th minute, so in between those two sequences I just mentioned, there's one in the 19th minute where Busio goes to close down the ball as Venezia are, are in their half pushing up defensively. And Buccio doesn't bite. He doesn't step too hard. He doesn't foul like we've seen him do earlier on this season. He stays disciplined and he forces Genoa backwards. And it's a great moment from him where we can see that growth happening from game one to now game 10 or whatever it is. There's real progress defensively, I think, from Gianluca Buccio, Taylor.
1: There is, and there is still the self-belief to make a play when the situation requires or allows, because I I've, I wrote in my notes, I call it, like, the Busio Cobra strike, where he kind of closes down and you think, like, okay, he's he's kind of funneled the, the attack into one little space, now they're gonna have to recycle, and now they're gonna have to figure something out, and then he gets his little poke tackle, or he just leaves a leg out in the exact right moment, and wins the ball, or pokes it away, or, t- or turns it out for a corner, or sometimes even pokes it to a teammate and starts a counterattack and those little reads that quickness to make that play I, I think to your point Joe is not a thing we saw from him earlier in the season because earlier it was about make sure I close this player down make sure I don't let anything happen but sometimes there was such an emphasis on close them down, get there in time, don't let anything develop, that he was over-pursuing, he was running into people, there were fouls. And so to see him refine that and get better at his sort of narrowing the, the uh, approach distance and then getting into to the point where he, he is within striking distance, that he can make that play, but he can also just force them back if they need to. And it's not the same thing every time. There's a variety to the way he is defending that is incredibly useful, uh, especially when you're playing uh, in Serie A and the U.S. national team.
2: Agreed. Yeah, for me, if Tesman's performance was a sideways thumb, not really thumbs mm-hmm. down, because we expect to see a lot of the raw, the rawness from him right now. If Tesman was a sideways thumb, this Bucio performance for me is a thumbs up. I liked a lot of what I saw on both sides of the ball. He's becoming a key player for Venezia, and that's great to see. I think it is. All right. Anything else with Gianluca Bucio or
1: Venezia or Tanner Tesman? No. Take us forward. All right, let's talk Luca de la Torre. Oh, yeah. Uh, We talked about him last week. We will continue to talk about him. He played the whole game as Heracles drew with Ajax, which is no small feat. Uh, Ajax had 70% possession in this game. De la Torre usually averages 75 or more touches per game. In this one, he had 39. But a lot of that was because of how defensive Heracles were playing and how hard Uh, De La Torre was working off the ball, six of seven duels won, he was two for two on dribbles, uh, conceded zero fouls, had some clearances, had some uh, ball recoveries and some interventions, or uh, interceptions, excuse me, and I thought really it was just, it was a good game where I kept expecting the pressure and the intensity of the game to cause him problems or to see some of those mistakes, and instead it felt like a
2: pretty solid game from start to finish, Joe. That's I mean that's exactly what we want to see consistency mm-hmm. from Luca Della Torre in midfield for Heracles especially Against a team that has been as dominant as Ajax has been this year. It's a great result for them, as you mentioned. And, and it's good to see Luca De La Torre get minutes in a moment like this, right? Greg Velasquez talked about last week how it's hard to evaluate Brendan Aronson in the Austrian League. And we'll talk more about Aronson later. But it can be hard to evaluate Aronson given the level of competition that he plays against on a regular basis in the Austrian Bundesliga. The same, I think, goes for Luca De La Torre. It's hard to take too much out of any one game because the level is is not all that high outside of a few specific clubs. And one of those few specific clubs that, that mm-hmm. has a high level is Ajax. And so this is a hugely valuable data point. Ajax is a much better team than probably anyone that the U.S. will face in World Cup qualifying, maybe outside of Mexico. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, yeah. this, is, this is a real test and having this data that we can draw on, I think is massive.
1: I think so too, and I think that's where I, – and I did the same thing with Aronson, watching the two of them play De La Torre and Aronson and seeing what they can bring that Greg Berhalter would want. And in this game, I saw a lot of that from De La Torre. Uh, I saw some deficiencies. I'll talk about those. But the big thing for me was I think Heracles knew they weren't going to have a ton of possession, knew that they shouldn't really mess around with the ball too much. And there's that idea that against a team like Ajax, who will press and will sort of step in very random moments and try to make you uncomfortable – slowing down possession and taking your time is a good way to shoot yourself in the foot and concede by giving the ball away 30 yards from your own goal, and so with Heracles, when they would win it back, there was a directness to the way they wanted to attack that is a thing that we've heard Burhalter talk about before. We don't want to be overly direct, but we want to be vertical in our passing. We want to try to transition into attack quickly and find uh, good opportunities, good or positive mismatches in advantageous situations, and that seemed to be what Luca De La Torre was looking for. And on a number of occasions in this, one he gets the ball central or gets the ball a little bit like wide of center but then is very quickly looking to either switch the point of attack or to play sort of penetrating ball down the line with his first or second touch to trigger that counter to facilitate the attack and that's a thing i think the u.s is going to need if they're coming up against a team that is bunkered or is more defensive or even as we've seen teams that do sort of try to go at the united states a little bit more and make them uncomfortable to have a player who can Win the ball back or help facilitate winning the ball back, but then thread that needle and play the ball forward and looks to do that pretty readily. Uh, made me excited to see what Luca De La Torre could bring to the US
2: national team if he's included in that roster. He's a ball progressor. He gets on the ball and he moves it forward, not every time and not, you know, a thousand no. percent of these actions, but he's doing some good work in that way for, for Heracles right now. And that's dating back to last season. We saw that uh, in, in 2020 as well. He can get on the ball and, and move it forward. And for the U.S., who are going to play against a lot of bunkered 4 4 2 blocks, I mean, man, every single game in the October window against Costa Rica, against Panama, against Jamaica, all three of those teams played a 4 4 2 block. And the U.S. at times really struggled to break through those things. So having a player like De La Torre, who's pretty efficient, generally speaking, in tight spaces and more aggressive and, and takes more risks than pretty much anyone not named Musa or McKinney in the U.S.'s eighth pool, I think there's a ton of value in having someone like that. And in this case, it is it appears to be at least Luca De La Torre. I agree with you. I then wanted to figure out
1: maybe why we haven't seen him or why we might not see him, what the things in his game are that maybe Greg Berhalter wants to avoid. And I, and I spotted two things that I would say, if we do see him with the U.S. in this next round of World Cup qualifying, I am going to be keeping an eye on to see if these are on display uh, for the U.S. national team as they were this weekend. But one is that when uh, Heracles are a little bit slower in possession or when Luca De La Torre would get the ball and have some time to carry it forward, that seemed to be where... Time isn't necessarily his favorite thing. And that's where I saw him slow down and sort of look left to right, right to left, and sort of evaluate options. And twice he lost the ball, trying to take people on while also trying to kind of evaluate his options. Where When he's playing with one, two, three touches and playing much faster and playing it forward, that seems to be where he is most comfortable where he tends to shine. Once he's trying to carry the ball out or take somebody on or just has time to slow it down – I I think some of that skill set diminishes. And so if we are playing against a bunkered team, I want to see him, if the U.S. is, I want to see him receiving the ball and moving it quickly and trying some little, like, chipped balls over the top for a runner kind of peeling off the back line at the top of the 18. I don't want to see him put his foot on the ball, take another touch, take another touch, then play it five yards wide, get the ball back, take a few touches, and play it five yards to his other side. Uh, I would like to see a bit of adventurousness when it comes to his passing. Uh, And then I would say his physicality is a thing that I noticed in this game. Not that he gets bodied off the ball, not that he can't go in for tackles, but that it seems like he holds off a little bit. And maybe against Ajax they didn't want to concede dangerous set pieces. But what that led to... Uh, was, I think, four different times in my notes. And those are the ones that I paid attention to as the game went on. He goes in for these 1v1s, these 50-50 challenges. But sort of does it half-heartedly, or he has his like foot in the air rather than swinging through and really just trying to win that ball. And he lost all four of those. Either lost them directly, or it bounced to uh, an Ajax player, or just kind of bounced into a loose space that then got picked up by an Ajax player. But those are the moments when, uh, against a CONCACAF team, they're going to let you know really quickly. Against Jamaica on the road, I have to believe that they're going to come through and let you know pretty quickly that they are there and it's going to be a physical game. And you shy away from those challenges if you don't go all in in those moments you give them an advantage you let them build momentum and so how Luca De La Torre handles that loose ball 1v1 in his first game for the U.S. if he's in the
2: if he's in the team if he gets minutes I will definitely keep an eye on that one I'm with you, Taylor. I'm I'm certainly watching, and one thing I want to learn more about Luca De La Torre is his defensive work. I want to learn more about what he's good at, what he's not good at, and this is a good data point in that regard. Learning that maybe he doesn't always fully enter challenges and fully go in to win those battles. I think that's something that we should keep our eyes on going forward, because that's an important part of how Greg Peralta wants to play. His midfield three are those players are his battle axe and they're going around and trying to win balls and re- recycle possession and regain possession and having players that are more passengers in those moments can really hurt the team. And so I don't know that Luca De La Torre is a full passenger or anything like that, but the margins, I think it's worth examining what those margins really are for De La Torre. Joe, here is my next question for you. We we don't do a like ranking of
1: the players or anything like that, but if we were to say which American won the weekend, who had the best weekend my assumption is that it's Joe Scally. Hmm. He's
2: got to be high up there. I honestly would put Luca De La Torre pretty high up there as okay. well. Weston McKennie probably two for scoring that goal for Ooh, Juve. That's a good one. But Joe mm-hmm. Scally, man, starting playing the full ninety for Gladbach and having an assist in that two-one yep. win on Sunday. It's a big performance from him, and he continues to show why he deserves a call up later this month. He also started midweek in Gladbach's five-nothing win over Bayern Munich in the DFB Pokal. He's doing some really impressive things right now, Joe Scalley.
1: I kind of forgot about the McKinney goal, having previously mentioned it. You're right, De La Torre deserves to be in that conversation. But that assist for Joe Scalley made me very happy. It's but then nice. also he just he just looked like a a, a dogged veteran fullback in the Bundesliga, and that's not a thing I expected to say about a person who is as young as he is.
2: I've just been so impressed with his work on the ball. He played some a couple, not as many as we talked about last time, but some nice left-footed balls. He had one in the 10th minute. That is that. I spent some real time the last time we discussed Scally talking about this kind of pass, but he opens his hips towards the middle of the field and receives the ball and hits a ball with his left foot up to Mbolo, sort of it's at this bending outwards kind of angle and Mbolo I think the reason this pass isn't completed is more on Mbolo than it is on Scali. Scali is leading him and I don't think Mbolo recognizes the space quickly enough but he plays a couple nice left-footed balls he has that assist it comes in the 12th minute to get the ball into the box for Alasana Pellier that gives that gives back a 1-0 lead and it is a beautiful cross from Joe Scally, not under much pressure but a nice ball into the box he has other great passes as well in this game that I didn't even send you Taylor 52nd minute Good ball into space with his right foot finding a runner outside the top of the box. Plays a really good ball across the face of goal in the 59th minute that easily could have been a second assist for him. He lost the ball a couple times. Sure, it happens. And in, in his there's some areas that aren't there yet with Scow that maybe we can talk more in just a minute, talk about more in just a minute. But overall, man, there's a lot to like about what Joe Scow is doing. And at this point, that's not really surprising
1: it 's not but it 's just to see how like he reminded me of Torontolo a little bit of just the getting up and down that 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 sideline doing the defensive job, but then still facilitating attacking play, and just looking confident on the ball playing playing balls that I think. You maybe, a couple weeks ago, I think he takes an extra touch before he plays certain balls in and where before he tries to find an attacker making that sort of diagonal run between the lines. Maybe he, he's like, I don't want to let risk giving up possession. And I think there, once you start backing yourself to like, no, I'm going to play it in and see what happens. I'm going to try to create something here. And if it doesn't come off, you're not immediately like, oh no, I've ruined everything. But it's just like, yeah, we'll try it again. We go again. That level of repetition but confidence behind it uh, is not a thing that I expected to see from him so quickly. And I and I don't know why I'm so hyped about a right back who's potentially even like our second choice right back. But I think just the way he has sort of come on, at least in my mind, the way he's developed so quickly, has me thinking uh, good things for Gladbach this season. I'm right
2: there with you, man. There's a lot to like about Joe Scally right now. His his passing ability is excellent as a right back. His work and his creativity and his vision all really really good as a right back especially for as young as he is I mentioned some things that I think he can work on and I want to talk about those right now to balance out this conversation we've mentioned this in the Fine. past I know I'm sorry I'm sorry we've mentioned this in the past Taylor his 1v1 ability in attack is lacking and we saw that again in this game I sent you the clip it's in the fifth minute Scala gets on the ball he tries to beat an opposing defender it just can't he ends up getting bodied off the ball which doesn't happen all that often but there's no real ability from him in that moment to create separation and we've seen that before. That's one thing I really want to see him work on throughout this season and down the line so that he can become a more versatile and multifaceted attacking player even as a right back. That's one thing. And then another thing that I noticed in this game that I hadn't really noticed before is I've talking about I I've been talking about how good of a passer he is and that's true when he has time and when he has space. I don't think he looks very comfortable when he's under pressure on the ball on that right side, Taylor. And this kind of connects to the 1v1 ability in that he's maybe not able or fully comfortable receiving the ball and creating space for himself to then pass once he has the space. But there's a disconnect when he receives the ball under pressure, there's a disconnect between that and his next action. He doesn't look comfortable when someone is closing him down and there's multiple moments like that in this game that I think he could really stand to improve and and become just a much better, more well-rounded player on that right side. So those are two things I'm watching for going forward. 1v1 ability and attack and how he creates separation or how he responds when he's being closed down aggressively by an opposing player before he gets on the ball. What would
1: improvement in that second one look like, Joe? Is it just keeping the ball and playing it safe and sort of going back to the center backs so or going back to a safer option? Is it trying to beat pe- people every single time? Is it taking them on 1v1? Like what is sort of a thing you would like to see that
2: will tell you, yep, okay, he's improving there. Well, it's hard to answer that because it's it's got to be situational, right? Passing the ball backwards in moment, one moment might be the right thing and taking a sure. touch forward might be the right thing in the next moment. So there's not really a blanket thing that I'm looking for, but I think watching how much he keeps the ball in those moments is going to be important because in this game there were too many times where he's either taking a heavy touch and losing possession or taking a heavy touch and because he's taken that heavy touch his only option at that point is to pass the ball backwards so I just am going to be watching those moments clearly and listeners if you're curious about this too maybe you're not I don't know I'd encourage you guys to watch these moments too and figure out okay what would Say Serginho Dest, who is hyper-comfortable on the ball under pressure, what would he do in a situation like that? What would another high-quality player do under pressure? Not even just a fullback, but what what is the length of these touches, how close is he keeping the ball to him, and, and what's the next action following those touches?
1: Would you like if there was a lot of variety to what you saw, Joe, if like sometimes it were that back pass back and that were the right choice? Sometimes it was like, oh, he tried to take that guy on and it didn't work out. Sometimes it's maybe he pulls the the defender in and then has a quick one, too. Is it basically
2: you want to see him be a versatile player on the ball for Gladbach? Yeah, absolutely. Right. And again, it is situational, but having someone who can sidestep an opposing player who is driving at him or who can play a quick bounce pass and then make a run off the ball and get the ball back and play a one-two. Having someone who can do all of those things, that's important to a team and that's part of what makes dangerous outside backs so dangerous and seeing Scally develop some of those things and become more versatile on that right side I think would go a long way for him, Taylor. I would be fine with that, Joe. I would be fine with that. Any other Scally points? Just to reiterate, I guess I would be very surprised slash disappointed if he's not called up in that roster that we're expecting later this week.
1: Yeah, and I mean, and especially Reggie Cannon's injury, DeAndre Edlin could be in that conversation. But yes, I think Scally needs to be in there. I will, I too will be pretty disappointed. I would be very disappointed if Brendan Aronson were not involved. I'm assuming he will be. I don't think that will be a point of contention. I kind of hope to see Christian Pulisic on the left, Brendan Aronson on the right, after what I saw for him this weekend. Started, got the opening assist in a 2 2 draw with Ried, I think is how you pronounce that. R I E D. Uh But he also had a, An assist for a goal that was disallowed, Joe, I sent you the clip of that one. And the thing that I really, really liked about Brendan Aronson's game this weekend, and we've talked about it previously, but it was very much on display this weekend, was against a team that were clearly playing for the draw. When they got up, they were clearly playing for the win, meant they were very defensive. They were very deep. They had a lot of numbers behind the ball. They didn't press until they were about 25 yards from their own goal, and then they were pretty aggressive in how they were pressing and putting people under pressure. And what I saw from Aronson in response was a lot. And I don't mean a lot in terms of he was on the ball constantly. I mean, he did a bunch of different things. To your point about what you want to see from Scally, sometimes I saw Brendan Aronson trying to take people on with slaloming runs. Sometimes it was one-touch passing or two-touch passing. Other times it was making darting runs in behind or darting runs out wide or even just sort of like boots on the touchline functioning as a winger. And because of that... I don't think Ried were ever really comfortable knowing where he was, what he was doing, and he drew fouls, he got on the ball a lot, he created chances, he had shots, he probably should have put one or two of them at least on frame, maybe in the back of the net, but still getting involved in, in attacking scenarios and also doing just little adjustments. I can't remember if I sent you this clip, Joe, but he has one where he sort of gets a shooting chance. He's about 15 yards from goal. He receives the ball. He opens it up, and he passes it with the instep uh, but puts it wide of goal, and that's not great. He should have put that on frame, but the way he sort of checks away from a defender then sees that there's a defender closer to him as he's backing up, so then he kind of takes one little step forward, and now he is splitting that gap perfectly and then turning to get the shot off because he's created that space and found that little tiny pocket, it. that's a thing you see world-class strikers do that's a thing you see world-class goal scorers do is just know where they are in relation to the defense make little adjustments to put themselves in better shooting opportunities if he can take those cleaner if he can put them on frame if he can put them in the back of the net the sky is the limit a little bit for Brendan Aronson I, I don't mean to be this positive about him but I just I saw so much to his game that you always have the, uh, the grain of salt when it comes to it being the Austrian Bundesliga as opposed to say the German Bundesliga but still A lot to like from Brandon Aronson.
2: And there's nothing wrong with that, right? There doesn't always have to be a follow-up. We can be... We can be positive about players like this because, in large part, Aronson has earned that positivity and he's earned the right to be discussed in this way. We've seen him really shine with the U.S. men's national team and we're seeing him do some nice things with Salzburg too. There are some things still that I, I want to see Aronson improve. His decision-making and how quickly he makes those decisions, I think, could could be elevated. But at the same time, in the clips that you've sent me, Taylor, from Aronson in this game and other moments I've saw, I've seen yeah. from him online in this game, He's making decisions pretty quickly. He's being incisive. He's being purposeful in the final third. And that's that's huge. That's really important. In my mind, that's one of the biggest things that's been holding him back and seeing him elevate his creativity and, and make those decisions yeah. a little bit quicker is, is massive, Taylor. It's purposeful is a great word, Joe. And I think that is I've I've been
1: trying to figure out why I'm so enthusiastic about Brendan Aronson, because to some extent, this is a thing we've seen before. He's a really good player for Salzburg and he works really hard and he creates goals. But I think it's that. What I saw from him uh, this weekend wasn't so much about effort and physicality and and doing what's asked of him. Certainly he did all those things, but it was that purposeful attacking intent. And it was sort of playing on instinct and knowing this is the run I'm supposed to make. This is where this ball is supposed to go. And even if it doesn't come off, and it didn't a couple different times, he makes those sort of, I want to illustrate this a little bit further because I think it's going to be very important for the United States uh, as we play, say, Jamaica, if they are more defensive or as we go through World Cup qualifying, if the team is set up 20 to 25 yards from their own goal and that's sort of where they've set their their line of engagement maybe also the offside line is around there there is that small amount of space between that back line and the goal that if you can play a ball in if you can catch the team sleeping that's where you can get those opportunities and if nothing else if you keep trying those if you go for the little passes through the little kind of dink ball over the top then You make the defense have to react to that. You make the goalkeeper have to make a choice of, do I want to come challenge for this? Are they going to do that every single time? Is the defense going to start to get worried about that? And will they drop five yards? And does that open up space elsewhere? You kind of have to probe and try different things to see what the defense does. And so to see Aronson... Both make those runs, sort of peeling off that back line, but also looking for those first and second touch balls over the top or through those lines. There's a decisiveness. There's a a, a purposefulness, again, to use your word, that to the way he was trying to play that stood out to me because I think that's what the United States has been lacking in the final third in getting consistent, creative attacking chances is kind of playing those risky balls, playing those probing adventurous balls and seeing what comes of it. And in this game, Aronson was doing that, but he was also receiving in transition and playing forward. He was playing balls between the lines. The goal that stood for his assist and the goal that was disallowed, very similar in the way he's receiving in transition, turning at the same time, basically playing on the half turn and then playing the ball through the lines to a teammate who's made that run in behind and is able to finish. One time it counts, one time it doesn't. But both of them, great turn, great vision, great technical ability to execute.
2: I wonder, we mentioned Caden Clark earlier in his move to Mm -hmm. RB Leipzig. You have to wonder how much longer Aronson's going to be at Salzburg. Having the chance to play in the Champions League this season is great, and I I think that's really important for him. I just wonder, man, when does that move come? Because he's been... Impressive, dating back to last season for Salzburg at this point. And it feels, I guess it feels slightly weird to me that Caden Clark would be at Leipzig and Aronson wouldn't, given the differences in when those two players initially made their moves or will make their moves to Europe. Not to say that I don't think Caden Clark is a good player because I'm really high on him and I think he could turn out to be better in a different way than Brendan Aronson. But still, I'm just wondering how much longer Aronson's going to be at Salzburg before he makes a jump to Leipzig or to another club. I had that thought. They do just seem to be this... I don't I don't even know what it's not a proving
1: ground it's just sort of like like you know that what is coming out of there is going to be good you know it's like A24 is the production company that I feel like always puts out really good movies and you sort of know oh, yeah, okay, they're going to be good. And the players coming through Salzburg that keep moving on seem to keep having success. Same thing with the manager. I was wondering, like, with uh, Marsh and uh Marco Rosa, like, how long will their current manager uh, be there before he gets an offer? Joe, do you know much about Matthias uh, Yassl? I think is his name? I don't. Nor did I. He is 33 years old. Wow. Uh, <laughs> and, yeah, uh, stopped playing in, I think, 2014, Uh, So very quickly moved into management, and now at 33 years old, it's probably going to be the next big thing. I look forward to which Bundesliga club ends up snapping him up at the end of this season. But yeah, uh, it does seem like that's what Salzburg have become is this sort of Institution for, yep, this player's good enough, let's keep them moving. And I assume Paxton, uh, Paxton Aronson will be, not Paxton Popacall, Paxton Aronson <laughs> will maybe come through there, maybe, maybe some others as well. But uh, yeah, Brendan Aronson I think continues to do well, and I look forward to what comes next, both for club and country. I'm right there with you. All right, Joe Lowry, you have been there right there with me for all of the many players we have discussed. (laughs) I very much appreciate that. I appreciate that you and I are going to be talking about the U.S. national team as the game against Mexico gets closer. We'll talk about the roster once that's released. But for now, Joe Lowry, I just want to say thank you for talking about all the things we talked about today and many other things as well. Aw, you got it. And thank you, Taylor. (laughs) Listeners, thank you all so much for listening. That is the end of myself and Joe Lowry talking, but it is not the end of the episode because before we go, I wanted to include a quick excerpt from a different athletic podcast, the Athletic Football Podcast, which you can find wherever you get your podcasts. They did a great interview, a long interview with Canada coach John Herdman. He talked about many different topics, including changing the culture of the team and how dysfunctional they used to be. Here's a clip of that conversation and you can find the full length interview over at the athletic football podcast
3: within that as well. I mean, a great example was the the second camp I had, there was another fight. So I really went after the leadership group on the training field uh, in the training environment. I shut the training down. I took the leaders to one side and went after them and really went in at them hard. And it was, look, Very clearly, this is a effing dysfunctional team. This team is so dysfunctional. If you just put a helicopter on what's just happened there, the Scottish lads went in that direction. The Spanish-speaking guys went that way. Another group went this way. The Eastern Europeans went that way. I said, this is your team. This is Canada. This is a, a microcosm of everything that's wrong with this team. The culture and why you guys have won absolutely FA in the last 30 years. If you don't fix this, nothing changes. we got to get to the core of this. And the captain, funny enough, it was uh, a Scottish lad, the, the captain at the time, he, he came to see us. He said, look, Gaffer, the, the guys have been talking. He says, and we're not really happy about what you said out on the field. He said, uh, you know, this, this is men's football. These things happen. It's part of part of the culture. It's part of what happens in men's football. I said, hey, don't make this a gender issue. Come on. Don't make this a gender issue. The issue is you're not willing to accept that this team is dysfunctional. And at the heart of this, you're a leader. And the leadership is underperforming. And we need higher levels of leadership. And you've got to invest in the leadership of this group to connect it. This is a team without a clear purpose And we gotta fix stuff.